Good morning, Capshaw. Please stand as we open this worship service with the reading of scripture. This week's scripture reading is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 and 11 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is in the head, who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Please continue standing as we continue with worship. I saw the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from every fear. Those who look on him are radiant, but never be This poor man cried, and the Lord. 
let us bless the Church family, how are you guys doing? Hopefully you have had a great beginning to 2021. I don't think any of us are too devastated that 2020 is behind us. Amen. But uh, we are glad that you have joined us this morning. Hopefully you've had a great uh, holiday season. I know that I've seen some faces that I haven't seen in a little while. So we are so excited that you are back uh, worshiping with us in person. We realize that we have a lot of people who are still worshiping from home virtually. So we are excited that you are joining in with us as well. We are excited for 2021, and we are excited about all the opportunities that God has for our church this morning. That being said, if this is one of the first few times that you've joined us, or, or maybe you're, you're possibly new here to our church, or you want more information about our church due to COVID, um, things have changed up a little bit, but in the seat back in front of you, there's a little QR code that uh, at some point during today's service, you can take a picture of that. And it will take you to our digital connect card, or you can just go to capshaw.org forward slash connect card. You can fill that online form out, and you can request information about any of our ministries so that we can help you connect here at Capshaw. Also, there's a, there's a portion out there uh, for, our, for our guests, for our regular attenders, our members, for any way that we can pray for you and your family or any, any prayer requests that you have. Fill that out as well. We love to pray for our church family. Also, being that 2021 is now here, ladies, we've got an exciting opportunity for you. Uh, we're going to be taking part of a, I keep saying we whenever I make this announcement. I'm sorry. We as like the collective 
uh, female population at Capshaw will be taking part of a virtual uh, women's Bible study. You knew I was going to do it, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, it's going to be, we're going to be uh, going through the uh, book of Proverbs through the host church, the village church out of Texas. And I promise you, you don't want to miss out. It is going to be a fantastic study. So if you want more information about that, or if you want to register, you do have to register. So you can go to capshaw.org forward slash events for more information there. We're excited that you're here. Um, we're going to continue worshiping uh, Christ as that last song said, man, he is so good. Amen. So we are going to continue worshiping him through music worship. Pastor Chris. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of My worth is not in skill or fame, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flows at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure. Wellspring of my soul, I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Him.
Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Pastor Chris. Uh, so good to see you this morning, church family and friends of Capshaw. I'm so glad to be able to begin this new year uh, by worshiping God together. And also want to greet those who are uh, watching online, who are worshiping virtually. Glad that you've decided to uh, join us. Uh, I know that uh, just changing the year number uh, doesn't mean that uh, all the bad stuff is behind us, but it just feels better, doesn't it? It does to me. It just feels like uh, it's a new beginning, and I know we have some work to do, and I know that uh, COVID is still uh, going strong, but you know, there's something about newness uh, that runs throughout the Bible that is presented as a way of hope and encouragement, and so uh, glad to begin the new year uh, with you. And uh, we're going to start a new series this morning, which I'm excited about. Let's pray, and we will get into the Word of God together. Uh, our Father in heaven, uh, what a great privilege it is to sing these songs which accentuate uh, your glory and your faithfulness and your goodness. And uh, you've already encouraged my soul this morning in you, and I pray that you would, you would impress upon our hearts the reality that the completion of our salvation is not dependent upon our uh, white-knuckled efforts, but it's dependent and contingent upon, rooted in, anchored in your faithfulness and your strength, and you will indeed hold us fast. Lord, we praise you for your forgiveness. We want to be quick to confess that we um, are quickly captivated by other things, other interests, other loves. We know that uh, we have failed you throughout last year. We've already failed you this year. We have fallen short of your standard of perfection, but we praise you that we find forgiveness and renewal in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. It, it's living and active and powerful. We thank you for the body of believers. It's, it's been good for me even just in a few, uh, the few moments I've been up here to look out and see some faces I haven't seen in a while. Thank you for the great bond that we have together in Christ, and I pray that you would encourage us today. I pray that you would uh, give us wisdom. We know that you say in the scriptures that those who ask for wisdom, you do give it to them, and you do not hold back, but you give generously, and we pray that that would be the case uh, even this morning. Father, minister to us, we pray, by your word and through your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 this morning. Uh, from 2002 to 2011, I was a board member for a ministry in uh, South Africa called Bethesda, which rescued children who had been orphaned by the AIDS virus. And I've shared with you before some of the stories of some of the incredible things, really, that God did through this ministry as, as babies were snatched up. Uh, who were left to totally care for themselves because both parents had succumbed to this uh, disease. There was a, a pandemic of a different sort going on in, in South Africa at the time. Now, it's, it's actually uh, gotten better over the last uh, 10 years or so, but at that time, they could hardly uh, dig graves fast enough to accommodate the number of people who were dying from AIDS. And so every odd year, I would go to Pretoria, South Africa, which is the capital city of South Africa, the even years we had our board meetings here in the States. And I would go over, and every year when I would get there, I'm surrounded by people as an international board, and so there are people from Greece and Europe and England and uh, Zambia and other parts in Africa and a couple of folks. I was one of the, the Americans. And 
And I was just blown away by the wisdom represented in this room. And I often ask myself what in the world I was doing on this board, frankly. What could I offer among such incredibly gifted people? The meetings were typically, uh, they were phenomenal meetings. God allowed us to make great uh, progress, and the Spirit of God was at work. And there was a, a mutual, there was a collegiality, a mutual respect, and very enjoyable. There was one time, though, when there was a local pastor in the area. He was actually a fundamentalist American pastor, American missionary, who asked if he could meet with us. And so we said, sure, and we didn't know exactly what it was about. Uh, but when he came into our meeting, he was very angry and kind of chastise us for the Bible translation we had on our promotional material and, and really got on us about uh, our, our commitment to empowering and equipping national leaders, uh, really kind of dressed us down for about 20 minutes in a very angry way. And then when he left, uh, after his time there, he left, one of the other people in the boardroom, one of the board members said something I'll never forget. He said, he said, when, he said criticism from some people ought to be regarded as praise. And I thought that was such an interesting statement that he made. His point was that not everyone's words carry the same weight. Not everyone actually speaks words of wisdom. Frankly, some people are fools. This is what the Bible says. And when an angry and vindictive person criticizes you for your patience, you ought not consider that an indictment, but rather a compliment. When a hateful person condemns you for your love for all people, you ought not consider that an insult, but instead an honor. Some people think they have great insight and they, and they think they have tremendous wisdom, when in reality they're only wise in their own eyes. Some people believe they're wise, but in fact they are what the Bible would call a fool. And fools, what fools do is they bring harm not only to themselves, but to the people around them. But here's the thing, a fool doesn't have to remain a fool his or her whole life. A simple person doesn't have to remain uninformed his or her whole life. And in fact, a wise person can become even wiser. The scriptures say you instruct a wise man and he will become wiser still. So here we are three days into the new year and it's a year again that everybody's been looking forward to, at least in part so that we can put the past behind us and, and move beyond some of our experiences, and with a new year come new resolutions to eat better and to sleep more, to spend more time with family, to exercise more, all of those things. And, and there's nothing wrong with resolutions, right? I mean, these are, sometimes these are good things. I made a few resolutions myself. I've already broken a couple. One was to have ice cream once a week, and I've already broken that just in one week. So we make these resolutions, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but they usually only last a few days maybe a few weeks, or maybe even a few months, but wisdom is good for the long haul. Wisdom is good for the long road. In fact, according to the book of Proverbs, wisdom is the key to life, the foundation to success, the wellspring to joy, and a shield of protection to those who embrace it. So what I thought I would do, and I, think, I hope this will actually complement our ladies' study, but what I thought I would do is just spend just a few weeks as we begin the new year in the book of Proverbs, looking at wisdom from God. So what we don't need, I don't think, is more uh, self-imposed obligations, more things to put on our already full stack. What we need is wisdom from God, divine wisdom, which the Proverbs offer to us. And we're going to see that 
wisdom is not just simply a thing for us to apply to our lives. Wisdom is a person. And we're going to see this morning as we look uh, at Proverbs and throughout the series how even the Proverbs, even the wisdom literature will point us to Jesus. So uh, let me just read the full section, uh, Proverbs 11, verses 1 through 9. Here reads the word of the Lord. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. So the book of Proverbs was written mainly by Solomon, King Solomon. It was also, there were some other contributors who, uh, who penned some parts of it. Um, but it's written during a time in Israel's heyday. It's, it's, it's the united monarchy, and things are going very well. Uh, commerce is booming. Things are, are, are just uh, clicking on all cylinders, and uh, it's before, of course, the first coins were minted, which happened around 600 B.C., and so if you were going to trade something, you know, metal or stone or uh, jewelry or precious stones or whatever, um, in order to get grain or wheat or whatever it is, there was a way you, did, you didn't have coins that you could offer. Um, what you would do is you would put whatever you were offering on one side of a scale and then on the other side of the scale, the merchant would put what was called the king's stone, and the king's stone was supposed to weigh an exact amount. So you knew exactly how much you were getting in return for uh, your product or what you were offering. The king's stone was supposed to weigh an exact amount. Uh, say, for example, the standard weight was five pounds. Now, of course, they didn't use the designation pound back then, but, but you get the idea. Um, the, the store owner would put his the king's stone on one side, you would put... Uh, your stuff on the other, and you know exactly how much you are getting in terms of weight. Well, a, a, a common practice among crooked merchants is they would actually shave down the king's stone. So what was supposed to weigh, for example, five pounds would only weigh three pounds, and you would not get the full amount that you were supposed to get uh, in return. It was just an old school way of, of cheating someone. And there are different ways, of course, that merchants do that uh, today. I went to a new restaurant in, in Madison the other day, and I, I, was, I was so pumped to see that the menu featured bourbon chicken, which is one of my favorite entrees, and so it had these big, brand-new uh, TV screens that were representing, made up the menu, and, and so I looked at that bourbon chicken on the TV screen, and it just looked so good. I couldn't wait to get it, so I ordered it, and I sat and waited, and then I waited some more, and finally the lady at the counter called out my order, and so I went up, and I, I grabbed my tray, and I looked at it, and it was red. So I said, well, this, I said, oh, this is, not, this is not what I got. I got the bourbon chicken. She said, this is the bourbon chicken. And I kind of looked up at the TV screen, and I looked down at what was on my tray, and I said, but, but this is not that. Like, what I have here, this is not that. She said, same thing, and she just turned around and walked off. 
So I just sat there and I ate my non-bourbon chicken. I don't know what it was. I still have no idea what it was, uh, and it wasn't very good. Um, but this is, this is just another way, this is, a, this is a contemporary way, and I'm not casting, I have no idea, like I said, first time in a new restaurant, I'm sure just a mistake, I'm not casting aspersions on this new restaurant, but there are all kinds of ways that we, we can be cheated, we can cheat one another, and what the Proverbs say, in fact, what we read here very, very early on is that a false balance or a way of cheating, any way of cheating is actually an abomination to the Lord. An abomination is something that the Lord despises. It makes his skin crawl. Now, God doesn't have skin. He has a spirit, but this is what would happen if he had skin. This sort of action, it grieves and angers God. God hates cheating. Cheating on tests, cheating on our taxes, cheating our employees, cheating our customers, cheating in our marriage. God hates cheating because it violates his character as a just God, and it's one of the most obvious ways that we show disdain for our neighbor uh, for whom we're supposed to demonstrate love. But not only does God hate cheating, this action, as you, you may have picked up on as I read this, these nine verses, this action is indicative of a pattern of behavior. You might say a pride, verse 2, a lack of integrity, verse 3, which leads to destruction. The crookedness of the treacherous destroys them, verse 3. Now, what Solomon is getting at, and he's building toward, and we're going to see it as we continue to work our way through this passage, is that there are consequences to the decisions we make. And through the rest of this section, what Solomon will do is he will contrast the benefits of righteous living with the consequences of wicked living. So notice a word that appears four times in this brief section. It's the word delivers. Verse 4, righteousness delivers from death. Verse 6, the righteousness of the upright delivers them. Verse 8, the righteous is delivered from trouble. Verse 9, by knowledge the righteous are delivered. You see that theme there. The righteous are delivered by righteousness. But who are the righteous and what are they delivered from? Well, there are two types of righteousness in the Bible. Uh, that are presented in the Bible. The first is, a, is, is called a practical righteousness. And practical righteousness is a reference to a conviction or a, a pattern of behavior, a way of life. The, the, pra the righteous who are practically righteous are those who are, order their lives around the commands of God. And so they, they submit to God's authority. They come under the, the teaching, the Word of God, the law of God, and they seek to glorify Him with their lives. Now, they're not perfect. In fact, they're far from it. They're not perfect. But again, they order their lives according to God's law. And as we just read, they are delivered by their righteousness, even delivered from death. Now, in the Old Testament and in the Proverbs specifically, the, the, the word death has a range of meaning. Um, in fact, it actually seldom refers strictly to physical death. It typically refers to trouble, violence, oppression. You know, we read in the Psalms, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Here's a reference to trouble that's on the horizon or danger. The threat of violence. As Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner writes, Death is a whole realm in conflict with life. Rather than a single and merely physical event, death throws its shadow over the living in the form of sickness, calamity, and above all, sin. 
So what Solomon is saying, this is so good, he's saying those who actually order their lives around the commands of God, those who come under the authority of God and listen to what he says, they are spared from the consequences of a conflict life, a calamitous life filled with disappointment and hurt. So here's our first point. Right living brings with it a host of natural positive outcomes. Now, I use the word natural because it's very important. I want to I make sure that, I'm not, that we're not going down the road of moralizing prosperity. And what I mean by that is, is believing that when things are going really well in our lives and things are, we're really succeeding, that this is because God is rewarding us because of our unusual obedience. Right, this is called moralizing prosperity. It's kind of like, you know, you go shopping on Christmas Eve and it's the busiest shopping day of the year and, and there's that parking spot right in front of the store you want to go to. And you immediately conclude, well, this is because of the right living I've been doing. This is all about right living. Or when the people around you, everybody around you, even your own family, everybody gets COVID and you don't get it somehow mysteriously. You don't get it. And you conclude, well, this is because I'm definitely living a lot better life than they are. I've been in a lot better lives than they're living. This is moralizing suffering. It's concluding that the good things that are happening to us are happening necessarily because of our good behavior that God is blessing. Now, is God pleased with our obedience? Yes, He is. He delights in our obedience. But we're on really thin ice when we conclude, again, that good things happen to us because we are such good people. Those who live obedient lives bring upon themselves good things because they are reaping the natural consequences of wise living. That's what Solomon is getting at. Let me give you just a few examples. The man who lives according to God's design in marriage, exercising fidelity, uh, loving his wife sacrificially, building her up, praising her. What he finds is he actually enjoys marriage the way God intended. So marriage is characterized by intimacy and oneness. He has as a wife, a, a wife who trusts him, who feels confident and safe around him and gives herself to him emotionally, relationally, and physically. There's one example. I'll give you another one. The woman who tells the truth in her friendships and thereby honors God in her relationships, she enjoys peace of mind. You've probably heard uh, the old saying, if you tell the truth, you never have to remember what you last said. Well, for the person who tells the truth, they don't have to remember, what did I say last time? How did I answer that question last time? They don't have to worry about spinning it or, or massaging the message. They just tell the truth. You ever been around someone, you ask them a question, you immediately see the wheels turning? Because they're, they're trying to figure out, okay, what did I say to the last person who asked me this? That has to be uh, exhausting. If you tell the truth, there is the natural sweet reward of rest. The man, another one, a man who's committed to living peaceably with others finds that typically he lives, people live peaceably with him. See, God's commands are for our good. God's commands are for human flourishing. God's commands represent not only his, his law that does condemn us because we fail, but they also give us the best way possible to live because they flow out of God's character and his infinite wisdom. As our creator, he is infinitely wise, and in his law, he shows us the best way to live. And those who obey God, 
those who come under God's authority and law, they find that they actually are spared the consequences of sinful choices. But what about those who ignore God's law? In the Proverbs, they're referred to as the wicked, sometimes the godless. Unlike the righteous, the wicked scoff at God's commands. And in this section, we're told in verse 3, the crookedness of the wicked destroys them. Verse 5, the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Verse 8, the wicked walks into trouble. Verse 8, the mouth of the godless destroys him. So just as the obedience of the righteous actually leads to a, a slew of natural positive outcomes, the disobedience of the wicked sends them headlong into pain, suffering, headaches. When bad things happen to people, it's not necessarily God punishing them, as we so often surmise. It's often simply the disobedient getting what their rebellion naturally brings about. Here's our second point. Rejecting God's design is a recipe for difficulty and trouble. So if you want a, you want a really hard life, you, you want a life characterized by endless disappointment, problems that are never resolved, a huge up and down swings, uh, all kinds of uh, difficulties and pain. If you want a life like that, it's easy. It's easy to get. You just disobey God's commands and instead live in favor of your own wisdom. Embrace your own wisdom over God's wisdom. Verse 2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Now, you may be able to say, you may be able to say, you know, I did it my way. I did things my own way. But the relational and emotional carnage will be everywhere. Right living brings with it a host of natural positive outcomes, but rejecting God's design is, generally speaking, a recipe for difficulty and disaster. Now, just like there's a danger in moralizing prosperity, I also want to be careful that we don't moralize suffering. And what I mean by that is we can easily conclude when things are not going well for us, that, well, this is because I've got some secret sin in my life, or God's out to get me, or God's going to put the smack down on me, or whatever it is. Or if something is going, we look at somebody else and we say, oh, that person's had COVID twice? Like, I didn't even know that was possible. Hey, that person must be really living a bad life. Or other things happen, we immediately conclude that something, that they're doing something wrong, that God is, again, that out to get them. That's not a biblical way to think. Does God discipline His children? Yes, He does, out of love. But suffering is part of living in a sin-cursed world. To live on this earth means we will suffer. And most of the time, much of the time, suffering just comes naturally. But we also bring suffering on ourselves when we reject God's design for our lives. Now, let me give you again some examples. Consider the consequences of, for example, the person who continues to abuse substances, going back and, and, and just becoming addicted and so on. How many families do we know? How many of us know people in our, in our lives or our past who have been just destroyed by continuing to go and rely on other substances? Or, or consider the, the cost of sexual sin. With virtually every illicit counter comes the the off-referenced walk of shame, the guilt, the nagging shame. With every instance of infidelity comes the pain that goes along with getting caught, which always happens, always happens. 
Likewise, every time we refuse to forgive someone as God commands, we say, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm not going to forgive you. I know I've been commanded to, but I will not do it. Who's the one who actually suffers? We do, not the other person. Whenever we reject God's blueprint for life, God's design, God's law, we bring upon ourselves the consequences of our rebellion. So you want to say, you know what? I want 2021 to be the hardest year of my life. I want it to be way worse than 2020 was. Well, that's easy. So you know what? I'm just going to reject what God says, and I'm going to depend on my own wisdom. Now, having said all that, here's the bigger problem. We all have rejected God's design in favor of our own way, and we continue to do so every day. We've all failed to live righteously. We've all failed to live in complete obedience to God's command. In fact, Solomon will say in an earlier chapter, who can say I have kept my heart pure? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can say that. From the moment we enter the world, we follow our own desire. We don't want to be under anyone else's authority. We don't want someone else telling us what to do. And even though the Proverbs show us the wise way to live, they also expose all the ways that we have spurned wisdom in favor of what's most pleasurable at the moment. And not only that, of course, we allow our hearts to be constantly seduced and drawn away by other loves. Now, not entirely for those who are in Christ. God will always keep His own. But we become infatuated with, become enthralled with other things, sports, career, pleasure, money, our reputation, the praise of men. We want so badly to be recognized, the affections of another. And so we know that the Proverbs expose all the ways that we fail to to live wisely. But this passage is not just about the benefits of living righteously contrasted with the consequences of living unrighteously. There's actually hope in this message. There's hope here. Look at verse 4 again. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, certainly on one level, Solomon is saying, so this has an immediate contextual application. On one level, Solomon is saying that if you were were dragged into the ancient Near Eastern court and you stood before a righteous king, it doesn't matter what sort of bribe that you could offer, what sort of money you have, you will not be able to turn his wrath away from you if you have betrayed him. So certainly there is a, there's a, there's a wisdom principle there. And, and there's even more than that. There's, we want to broaden it out as we've done. There's an intensely relevant application for us today, and that is through our practical obedience, through our, our efforts to come under the authority of God and to live according to His, his Word, We are delivered from death, the the broad meaning, all of the negative and devastating consequences that I just articulated. So that's an absolutely proper interpretation and application. But the Holy Spirit, as he carried along Solomon, as he penned these words of wisdom, had an actual fuller meaning to this. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples in an upstairs room in Jerusalem on the very day of his resurrection? He'd taken this long walk to Emmaus and kind of sidled up to some people that were walking along. And then he spent some time in Emmaus and he walked all the way back to Jerusalem. He gets up to the upper room with his disciples. And of course, they're stunned. They don't know what to make of it. They they can hardly believe. And Jesus shows them his scars. He eats some fish. 
He spends time with them. And then he tells them or shows them that all of the scriptures are actually fulfilled in him. Even he says the ketavim, which is the Hebrew word for writings, which means the Psalms and the Proverbs, the wisdom literature. He says all of it actually finds its fulfillment in me. Well, the Apostle Paul would, would help us to understand that later in 1 Corinthians 1. He, he, he talks about wisdom as not being so much a thing as much as a person. Now, you read the Proverbs, and often wisdom is personified as a person who is calling out in the streets, begging those people who are broken, who are, who are simple, who are foolish, to come and find hope and wisdom. Well, the personification in the Proverbs pointed to an even greater reality than what Solomon understood. Wisdom actually has a name. The wisdom of God is Jesus of Nazareth. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. So the Proverbs, on one level, they certainly reveal to us the mind of Christ. So it's as if we were sitting with Jesus out at a fire pit under a starlit sky, sitting out on a beautiful evening, and we're just picking his brain, asking him questions. The Proverbs reveal to us the wisdom of Christ, the mind of Christ. But they also point us to the salvation that is found only in Him. And here in verse 4 of chapter 11, where we read, Righteousness delivers from death, it goes much deeper than just an immediate application. Ultimately, it will be the righteousness of another that delivers us from final death. Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And even in Proverbs 11, even in the wisdom literature, we're being pointed to the sufficiency of Jesus. A few months ago, or a few moments ago rather, I said that there are two types of righteousness presented in the Bible. There's the practical righteousness, which has to do with living, uh, ordering our lives around the commands of God, the conviction to live rightly before God. And that's a very good thing. That's a great thing. But it's never enough to earn God's forgiveness, practical righteousness. It's never enough to satisfy the requirements of a holy God because none of us is perfect. We all fail all the time. Well, there's another type of righteousness discussed in the Scriptures, and that's called positional righteousness. So practical righteousness, positional righteousness. Now, some call this imputed righteousness or, or an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that is Christ alone, but one that God applies to our account by faith when we trust in Jesus for our salvation and forgiveness. The only righteousness that will count anything in terms of our final salvation is actually a gifted righteousness, one that is ours by trusting in Jesus. So when we come to the end of ourselves... We turn from our own sin. We turn from our rebellion. We recognize how desperately we need a Savior. We put our faith in Jesus Christ and His cross work. What God does is He takes our guilty record. He puts it on Jesus. 
And he takes Jesus' perfect righteous record and he credits it to us. This is the righteousness that delivers from death and trouble to which Solomon alludes. This is a gifted righteousness. You can't earn it. You can't get there by satisfying a million resolutions. It is a gifted righteousness that brings with it forgiveness, freedom, hope for eternity, and the fellowship and power of God. And it is only from the position of being made righteous by faith, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that we're actually able to to grow in wisdom and put off sin. So here's the beauty and mystery of that equation. This is our third point. Our positional righteousness makes possible our practical righteousness. See, the glory of God's salvation is not just that He wants to make us positionally righteous or declare us righteous. He also wants to continually, by the work of His Spirit, conform us into the image of His beloved Son. So He declares us righteous, and then He slowly, over time, makes us righteous. Now, we don't attain perfection in this life. But He slowly conforms us and transforms us and molds us into the image of of His Son for two reasons. One is for our own good, so that we're actually spared the consequences of sinful choices. But the other reason is so that that our neighbor will look at us and then look to our Father and glorify God in heaven. This is what Jesus says in the early chapters of Matthew. Even our good works have a missional component to them. They're meant to point others to the living God. I joked about how badly some of us wanted to turn the page in 2020 and uh, enter a new year and kind of say good riddance to this last year. Well, for some, that urgency may be because of some terrible things that happened in your year. Maybe it had to do with a marriage, or maybe it had to do with a job, or maybe it had something to do with your health, or maybe it had something to do with your finances, but you are so eager to turn the page and put the past behind you. Well, for some, uh, maybe they're desperate to enter into new year because they want a clean slate. I mean, there was something, there was a terrible sin that they were enslaved to. There was some, something they did to really hurt someone else, in some way that they wronged someone else. And they want to put the past behind them. Well, here's a beautiful thing. For those who are in Christ, every day is New Year's Day. Because we begin every day with God's approval of us in Christ, His love for us, His complete and total acceptance of us. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to, we don't have to make or complete any resolutions. We don't have to achieve anything in order to receive it. We don't have to prove that we're worth it. Before we accomplish anything, He has already spoken His approval over us in Christ, and He loves us. He sees us as perfect because of the righteousness of Jesus, which is ours by faith. And from this state of acceptance, from the position of already being loved, we are then compelled and empowered to further seek after God and to honor the one who redeemed us. So let me wrap this up by way of some application here, some wisdom for the new year. Solomon says, if you want to really enjoy life, you want a good life, you want to experience happiness and peace, walk in the ways of God. Obey the commands of God. 
Now, of course, it's no guarantee that your life will be easy. It won't be easy, but it will be richer and fuller and more satisfying than any other way. Now, for some of you, this may mean adjusting the way that you think so that it conforms to the will of God, God's revelation. It may mean that you've had some some long-held belief or conviction that you need to test against Scripture and come under the Scriptures and change the way you view things. The reason your life is so hard is that your beliefs, your, your way of thinking, your actions are not in line with God's Word. It's not that God's, God's not keeping you from being happy. You've chosen to live by your own rules and you're suffering because of it. And maybe today, on the first Sunday of a new year, God is calling you to repent and to come under His authority. For some of you, for others of you, what the Spirit may be directing you to do is actually repent of your independence. You've never outright rejected God. You you, you believe that you've actually come under God's rule and God's law, but the reality is you're depending on your own ability and your own goodness. And what the Lord is offering you this morning is a righteousness that you can never earn, a righteousness that is yours for free, and it is a righteousness that delivers from death. Not just eternal life in the future is the promise, but all spiritual blessings in Christ even now. A new righteousness, a new power, a new life, a new love a new identity. All of those can be yours in Christ. And you turn from your self-salvation project and actually cling to the work of Christ. Now, one final word to those who feel like, maybe you feel like this morning you're, you're listening, but you feel like you're beyond God's grace. You say, if you knew what I did in 2020 or, or years past, you wouldn't offer this invitation to me. Maybe you feel like you've sinned against God one too many times. Maybe you feel like your particular sin and the way you keep falling to it over and over has rendered you outside of God's grace. Well, even if you've disobeyed God a million times, and even if it's the same offense, it's the same thing you keep running to, even if you've disobeyed God a million times and you brought on yourself all kinds of negative consequences, The powerful testimony of the whole Bible is that God has not written you off. God's heart for you in Christ is one of a tender welcome. I've been reading, uh, currently reading, and you may say, well, you say you're reading a lot of books. I I read, I have a stack of books I'm reading, and I kind of go through them. I'll pick one up and read part of one and another, but I'm currently reading this book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. And if you're, if you're looking for one book to pick up this year, I would recommend this one. In it, the author, Orland, makes the point that what Jesus loves to do more than anything else, perhaps, is welcome home those who feel like they've gone too far. Those who, he wants to welcome home those who feel like they've strayed too far from him. Embracing the sinner who's returned is what gets Jesus up in the morning, Orland says. And here's what he writes, and I'll conclude with this. For the penitent, that is the broken, the sorrowful, the contrite, Christ's heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins. 
and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures. For lowly gentleness is not one way that Jesus occasionally acts toward others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. He can't ungentle himself toward his own any more than you or I can change our eye color. It's who we are. And so I would say to you this morning, if you feel like you've strayed too far, you haven't. You have a Savior who is welcoming you with open arms and wants to receive you in your repentance and faith. And if you're here this morning and you feel like, you know what, I haven't. I've stayed so close to Jesus, I look around, I see everybody else wandering off. May the Holy Spirit bring about the conviction that will lead you to cling to the righteousness that is a gift, a righteousness that you don't possess, and neither do I, but can be ours only through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the wisdom of the Proverbs. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who is himself the true wisdom. And I pray this morning, I want to pray for our church that you would enable us by your grace to be a church that clings to the work of Jesus on the cross. Help us, Lord, empower us, enable us to be a church that is rooted in and anchored in our position in Christ. The fact that we've not done anything to earn salvation, but it's been given to us. It's a free gift offered to us through the person and work of Jesus. And as we receive that gift, you declare us righteous. And from a place of righteousness, from a solid, never-altering place of acceptance before you, we then can work and strive and seek you and put to death our own sin in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. And I pray that you would again cultivate within our church a spirit of gratitude and worship and generosity and care and service as we recognize what you have given us and the way that you have served us and all that you've done for us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing together.
Um, listen, it is such a joy to gather with you here the first of the year, um, and um, I, I just want to say this, normally during this portion of the worship service, we're asking people to give, and we want to do that, we want to ask you to give joyfully and sacrificially, but I just, I want to, one, thank this church for your faithfulness to give uh, through 2020, when there was so much uncertainty, so many, and I, I looking around, know so many pastors and churches that are really, they, they, they struggle. They really, really struggle during 2020. And um, because of God's faithfulness, uh, Capshaw, um, was, I mean, was blessed. And I don't, I, I don't know any other way to say that other than just praise God for his faithfulness. And so I'm, I'm going to pray now. You can give. You can give online. You can give in person. There's multiple ways. If you have questions, come and find us. But I'm not going to spend time with that. I'm going to spend time praying, thanking the Lord for His kindness and mercy and, and faithfulness to us this year. Let's pray. God, our Father, we praise you, Father, for your kindness and your grace and your mercy that you benevolently just bestow upon us continually over and over and over again, singing songs of that we just saying that no matter even our wandering and our unfaithfulness, God, you continue to, to show your faithfulness to us. I'm reminded, Father, just through your word and through John's sermon this morning that, that even despite our positional holiness, our practical holiness, sometimes they just do not line up. But, Father, you, you are, 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 are faithful. And we know that through the promise of your Holy Spirit coming and indwelling us, that, Father, through time, it is progressive, you sanctify us and make us more and more into the image of your Son. And Father, we just we thank you for that work you did in 2020, and we pray even more that would become 
what we're characterized by in 2021, that we would grow in faithfulness. Uh, faithfulness that comes out of a delight and a joy and satisfaction for what has been done for us in Christ. And so, God, I, I praise you, Father. I thank you for this church and just their continued faithfulness to give. God, we know uh, if we had time, we could sit and talk about just the, the vast number of people that, and just globally, Father, that, that, that we have been able to partake and just, just participate in and, and be a part of your hand, uh, making disciples who make disciples just around the globe and, and meeting physical needs uh, for, for many around the world. Father, we just praise you, Father, for the opportunity to be a part of that. God, I thank you for little things. I know churches that, and this is not little, I guess, this is big, but I know churches that had to lay staff members off. I just praise you, Father, that, that we weren't in a position to have to do that. Um, God, you are so kind uh, to us. And Father, we just we pray that this year, Father, out of just reflecting on your kindness that you showed us in 2020, that we would grow in faithfulness in 2021. Lord, we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. We'll close by way of benediction for us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I tricked you, didn't I? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. I think this goes with what we've been talking about this morning. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, this is amazing. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Capture all, you are dismissed.